So um, this week, I, I've had just um, a real gift from the Holy Spirit uh, and from just the work uh, of God over the last um, uh, over the last few uh, weeks, but particularly last Sunday. Uh, the, the message that the Lord laid on Zach's heart for us has really stirred within me and uh, really uh, struck me multiple times over the course of this week. That, that, that core message that there is no place you belong more than in the presence of God. I mean, I needed to hear that. I needed to be reminded of that. For me to hear, Jason, there is no place you belong more than in the presence of God. Because that issue of belonging is such a struggle for so many of us so often, right? This, this where do I fit? How, where is my position? Where is my place? Uh, who can I trust to be that place of belonging? My family, my friends, what setting, what environment? Uh, and, then, and then even if you take it a step further, we struggle with, with this question, where do I belong in, in, in the faith? Uh, I'm a sinner and, and I am broken. And how can I uh, actually belong with a perfect and holy God, and yet uh, Scripture attests to the way that has been made, the veil that has been torn, so that access is granted, so that each and every one of us can hear this gospel truth. There is no place you belong more than in the presence of God. Man, that's, that's done a work on me. So I just wanted to, to say uh, that, that, that this morning's message is is the next move, and it's the move that we have in Hebrews, uh, last week's scripture, and it continues on this week. So we're in Hebrews chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, I hope that you'll turn with me there. We're going to re, uh, review the four verses um, from last week, beginning in verse 14, and then we're going to continue on in chapter 5 uh, through verse 4. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please follow along. If not, the words will be on the screen as we together hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as that uh, for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. This is God's word offered to us in its reading and in its hearing, and together we give thanks to the Lord God Almighty. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer?
Gracious and loving God, what a gift it is to gather together around your word, to know that you have spoken to us today. Lord, help us to to, to humbly come before your word and in reverence and honor and and trusting that, that the word that you are speaking is true and is good. Lord, open our eyes that we would see, our ears that we would hear. Open our minds that we would come to know and understand your word, our hearts that we would feel its power. Then open our hands, O Lord, that we might offer grace to the world on your behalf. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I went to seminary in... uh, uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, at Candler School of Theology at Emory University. Lauren and I love Atlanta. We were just talking about it yesterday. We love Atlanta. If Atlanta was in Texas, we would live in Atlanta. It's not, so we don't, because we are Texans. But, uh, but, but it's, a, it's a great place. Uh, it's a beautiful place. And I knew whenever I went to seminary that I wanted to both be uh, an academic and a practitioner uh, and so I, I didn't want to, to only be in seminary. I, I then decided I was going to be a full-time student and a full-time uh, uh, employee of a church. So I was the director of mission and outreach for Northside United Methodist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. Northside is located in the heart of Buckhead. Uh, and uh, think River Oaks for you Houstonians. Or if you're, a, if you're a, just, just a Dallas Southite, think Holland Park. I know that there are some Dallas South folks living in the woodlands that really aren't yet Houstonians. Don't wait. I mean, don't worry. It's coming. You will become Houstonians. Um, and, and so it's a beautiful space, and it's a beautiful sanctuary. It's a glorious church. And when you walk in the sanctuary, I mean, it's, it's the dark woods, and it's ornate, and everything is intricate, and, and and uh, the, the altar just seems to, to rise at the end of, uh, of the transept. And, and there, the altar is actually made out of marble. It's just glorious. And there's the pulpit. You know what a pulpit is? Some of you don't know what a pulpit is. A pulpit, it's, it, it's, it's, it's where the pastor speaks, except for it, it, the pulpit rose up from the chancel, which is the platform. And, and it kind of just sits over the people like this. I mean, way up there. So everybody's looking up to the pastor. Well, I, I was blessed to have a really um, great mentor, a uh, great relationship with the senior pastor of Northside. I, I guess he so, showed some mercy on me, uh, and he took me under his wing. His name was Dr. Gill. And Dr. Gill was, uh, was an old-school Georgian preacher. I mean, he's so Georgian. He's seventh-generation Georgian. Uh, I mean, he, his, his family in Atlanta predates the Civil War. And so whenever you, you get to know Dr. Gill, there's just a refinement about him. Well, for, the, uh, for uh, the first time ever, I was on a mission trip with Dr. Gill, and I witnessed him do something that I'd never seen him do before. We were sitting at dinner back at the lodge, a round table, and uh, the first evening he ordered uh, some bottles of wine for the whole table. And I was a little bit shocked. I had never seen Dr. Gill 
have wine. I'd never seen him uh, uh, around any alcohol at all. I had had dinner with him many times over. Never once had I witnessed him with alcohol. And so later that trip, I, I, I just pulled him aside. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm his mentee. I'm under his wing, and I'm just trying to learn. And I say, Dr. Gill, like, explain this to me. I've never seen you with alcohol before back home, but in this setting, you know, with a few staff members and a few particular leaders, uh, you're, you had uh, wine with us. Could you explain something to me? And he said, Jason, uh, every pastor has a choice, a choice to make. Either they're going to be aspirational or they're going to be authentically vulnerable. Those, those are the choices. And he said, have you seen the sanctuary? I've, said, I've seen the sanctuary. It's awesome. He said, have you seen uh, the, the, the procession? I said, I've seen the procession, Dr. Gill. I mean, Dr. Gill had this, the robe on, you know, the, the black robe. He had this beautiful stole. He had a big gold cross with the big gold chain around his neck. He even wore his doctoral hood with all the colors on the back of it. Okay, I mean, I... I had never seen a, a pastor wear their doctoral hood. Dr. Gill wore his hood. And the procession, I mean, it's a big cross and the Bible and the acolytes and the choir behind the pastor. And then when this thing, and when Dr. Gill entered into the pulpit with his hood and his cross and everything, and he said, Jason, you've seen, you've seen the sanctuary. You've seen the procession. I've chosen because it's the context with which I've been appointed at north side to enter into an aspirational role as pastor where I'm going to be that which others hope to emulate he said but it's lonely I don't have many friends some might even think me a recluse other than my work at the church I don't let many people in because I have to worry about what others will think if they got to know some of my frailty or brokenness. He says, so that's a choice. You could be aspirational or you could be authentically vulnerable. You could be authentically vulnerable where, where in your preaching and in your presentation, you're, you're open, you're, you're willing to confess, you're willing to share that, that, that you're still walking through this journey of sanctification with and amongst the people. This, this journey looks more like uh, the pastor that comes from the body and, and rises to preach. It's a very different framework, but you have a choice to make, and you're still in seminary, so it's yours to make and yours alone. I was just like, wow, it's quite a choice. And, and some of you uh, have been to or been in, uh, uh, exposed to that aspirational style, a lot of like TV-oriented, uh, you know, mass-produced, mega-church sort of thing. Like you could never engage with the pastor and never get to know their warts. Uh, Part of me thinks that this is why circuit riders were so successful in the early days of, of, of America, because you're only with the pastor for two or three days, and then deuces, they're gone. Like, you didn't get a chance to see how gross they are, um, right? 
or, or, or how in the 20th century pastors would stay somewhere two or three years and then the itinerant system said they're gone, right? Like, uh, because as soon as you got to know that they were human too, uh, they, they, were, they were gone and you could then be aspirational with the next pastor. But that's not how I think our journey has gone together. I've been here 11 years, and I know that y'all have seen some murk on me and some mud on me. You've, you've seen my flaws and shortcomings whenever I was struggling with pride or whenever I was quick-tempered or whenever I was um, frail or broken in any number of ways. But I know that also comes with its own risks. So I want to maybe help us or help myself by saying I think that this choice to be authentically vulnerable is actually biblical and it's rooted for us in Hebrews and in Leviticus and uh, we find it in the opening of chapter 5. You see, in Hebrews, uh, we, if you have your Bibles, I want you to just take, take uh, a pen and, and draw a line between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. Because we can confuse ourselves if we don't rightly position these two, uh, pa- these two uh, uh, passages as connected but distinctively unique. The first section in, at the end of chapter 4 is specifically pointing to Jesus. What uh, what Jesus is as high priest and how we relate to God through Jesus as high priest. And so when we get to chapter 5, if we're still in Jesus mode, we're going to miss uh, the, the work that the, the author is doing here. He's actually recording for us, beginning in chapter 5, what, what the high priest was prior to Jesus. And, and if we don't make that shift, then, then we're going to get a little bit confused. Uh, in verse 3 of chapter 5, we, we would hear, This is why he, the high priest, has to offer sacrifices for his own sins. And if we're still in Jesus mode, we're going we're to get confused. We're going to rightly start asking, questioning, Hold on, I thought Jesus was perfect without sin. He was. In fact, we heard that at the end of chapter 4. And so when we move to chapter 5, we have this reframing, refocusing that we need to do. Chapter 5 is pointing back to the Jewish heritage before Jesus. You see, this is what it's like to have a high priest. And to have a high priest that you know sins. Not someone that you can you could place on a pedestal and, and say they, they are distinctively different than you. No, no, no. They are one with the people. They're actually called from the people, and, and they still sin. And last week, whenever we, we studied Leviticus 16, uh, we saw the frame of this and what looked like the Day of Atonement. You see, the Day of Atonement each year was an opportunity for the sins of the people of God to be atoned for. And there was a unique step that, that we kind of hit but moved past that we're going to stay with a little bit longer today. And that step on the Day of Atonement is that the high priest has to start by atoning for his own sin. Sacrifices are, are made for the high priest's sin. This isn't something that can be done. Uh, you, you can't atone for the, the people's sin until your sin 
is atoned for. And so uh, that actually is rooted for us earlier in Leviticus in chapter 4. I love Leviticus 4 because to me Leviticus 4 is actually uh, the foundation of Romans 3.23. Now, many of us know Romans 3.23, it's, it's the, the Roman road. Uh, it says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Well, Romans 4 is an example of that for us. See, Romans 4 goes step by step through every different class and group uh, of, of people in the Jewish culture. It says, uh, when they sin do this. When they sin, do this. If they didn't know they were sinning, when they realize they sin, then do this. And it even has, uh, as a starting point, the clear articulation that the high priest sins as well. And that's why we get what we get in chapter 16. We're going to look at chapter 4, verse 3. Here's how it reads. If the appointed priest, the high priest, sins, bringing guilt on the people... He must bring to the Lord a young bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. The high priest sins. It's assumed in Scripture. And it perpetuates year over year. So even if the high priest isn't uh, isn't confronted with their sin, in a year's time, there is a guarantee that he has sinned And so, at the Day of Atonement, he has to offer sacrifices for his own sin. So this is who who we have in Jewish culture, the high priest, the very nature of the high priest. And and this this, uh, sin uh, is is exemplified or is, is functioning as a way in which the high priest is able to connect with and relate to the people. In chapter 5, verse 2... It names the benefit of this for us. It says he, the high priest, is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is a gift. It's a gift that the high priest relates to the people differently because they understand their own sin. I feel like this was a problem with the Pharisees in Jesus' day. So many of the Pharisees uh, thought that they had actually achieved or, or, or uh, were consistently able to achieve uh, legal uh, adherence according to the Jewish law. Thus, they were Pharisaic. They thought that other people should be able to be as obedient to the law as they were, but they were missing the point. They were sinful and in need of a Savior, just as all of the people were as well. So the high priest didn't deal harshly with the people because his sin was on display for all to see through his own sacrifices. And for that reason, he dealt gently with them. This dealing gently out of an awareness of one's weakness is then laid upon the very character and nature of Jesus in chapter 4. 
In chapter 4, verse 15, now we're back to Jesus as the high priest. And here's what it says for us. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus is able to empathize with us because, he, because of his weakness, because he's been tempted in every way, yet he did not sin. This, this character of Jesus in his capacity and desire to empathize with us is a true gift for us. You see, there are some, there are some things that are, that are musts when it comes to the, the, the nature of Jesus, Christology, the way in which we understand Christ. Uh, the, the first is that Jesus is incarnate. Jesus is flesh, that, that he is fully God and fully human. And when he is born, he is born as a frail human. And that's essential because salvation could not be known through, uh, uh, from a distance. It had to be God with us. And when God came and took on flesh, he was then able to be the second Adam. You see, Adam 1 in Genesis uh, was the originator of sin. And from original sin, we needed uh, another human to reposition all things in right order. And so God sent his only son incarnate, fully man, with us so that he might now be the second Adam for us. That's non-negotiable, number one. Jesus has to be incarnate, otherwise none of it works. The second thing is Jesus had to die. Jesus literally had to die, not figuratively, uh, not, not in, in some way that we could try to draw some scientific, like he was in a coma. No, if he was in a coma, it doesn't work. Jesus had to die. That's why he, he rose on the third day, because in Jewish culture, you knew someone was dead, dead, like really dead on the third day. And so, so as Jesus doesn't rise until the third day, so that all would know that Jesus actually died. No mistake about it. And that was necessary because we needed a sacrifice to substitute all of the other sacrifices that are necessary for atonement. We needed the sacrifice uh, for a sin offering, the sacrifice for a burnt offering. We needed all of the sacrifices of Leviticus to be satisfied in one fell swoop. And that was through the sacrifice of the Lamb, Jesus Christ the Lord. Non-negotiable one, the incarnation. Non-negotiable two, that he died. Non-negotiable three, he had to rise from the dead. And this rising from the dead is in order to uh, bring victory over death. The whole meta-narrative of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is a story of restoration of relationship between God and his people. He desires relationship with you, and he's made a way. He's given you access, granted you access through the veil that has now been torn, and he's done that through the rising from the dead. No longer uh, are, are we only with God uh, if we can follow some sort of laws or legalism. Now we are with God through the blood of the Lamb, and we are with him forevermore. 
it lasts for eternity. Jesus had to be incarnate. He had to die and he had to rise. And he had to be pure. He had to be the perfect sacrifice that would once and for all satisfy the penalty of death. He had to be without blemish. And so when Hebrews attest to the fact that Jesus was tempted in every way, but he did not sin, we then have testimony to his purity. You see, this is a beautiful witness to us because we know the torment and torture of temptation. We know, we know what it's like whenever, whenever Satan has found a foothold in our life and continually brings the same temptation back before us and how it plagues us and, it, and we wrestle and we struggle and we strive and we fight and it hurts We know what it's like to pursue holiness, but to know the torture of temptation, so does Jesus. Jesus knows that. We also know what it's like whenever uh, we think that there's a space or a segment of our lives that's pretty good. Like we're walking, we're walking the path, and we, we, we feel like we're rejoicing in that. And then it seems like out of nowhere we're blindsided with a haymaker, and next thing we know, there's temptation laying before us in a whole new way. And in that space as well, we now are confronted with the glorious truth that Jesus was tempted there also. Jesus was tempted in every way, and yet he did not sin. But that torture and torment of temptation is indeed good news for us. Because in it, we now know that Jesus empathizes with us. And we know the power of empathy. You know the power of empathy. I'm reminded of, of, of those moments where I witnessed my mom devastated after uh, my parents' divorce. And then all of a sudden introduced into my life uh, was a woman named uh, Ramona. Ramona and my mom both were divorced in the same season of life. And in the midst of their pain and their trauma, that empathetic relationship just drew deep roots and now Ramona and my mom are best friends 20 plus years later. You know the power of empathy. I've seen it uh, witnessed even in our congregation when Jill and Andy LeBlanc lost the life of their four-year-old daughter Molly May and then I watched XB and Kelly Cox approached them in the midst of their pain and despair and share with them something that few in our congregation knew about, that XB and Kelly had also lost a son. And the tears and the mourning and the love that was able to be shared between the LeBlancs and the Cox family was so beautiful because of the power of empathy. You know the power of empathy. I remember as a pastor in Bryan College Station, I had a young college student in my congregation named Lacey Roxborough. 
Lacey uh, was, a, was from Kingwood, Texas, and while she was in college, her high school sister committed suicide, shocked everyone, shocked her family, shocked Lacey, and brought deep uh, pain and longing for her sister. And it set Lacey on a mission. Lacey began to go to high schools all over uh, the, the North Houston area. She would go into high schools and she would talk about uh, depression and she would talk about suicidal thoughts and she would talk about love and she would talk about hope and she would bear witness to what was possible uh, in, 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 in finding hope in relationships. And, and in the midst of that, she came back uh, after, after a week of, of presenting and she, uh, I took her to lunch after church and she began to weep, and in, in the weeping, she said, I didn't know what was going to happen. She said, I always knew that, 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 I, that, that I was going to be used as an instrument of hope, but what's happened is every single place I've gone to speak, someone who's also lost a loved one to suicide comes and meets me, and together we talk, and we mourn, and we weep, and we miss, and we persist in hope. You know the power of empathy. You've witnessed it. You've experienced it. What a great gift we have from God that in His Son, Jesus Christ, He would he would torment and torture through temptation so that in his weaknesses, he could relate to us through the power of empathy so that, so that we would feel bold and confident to come before him because we know that he has struggled as we have and in the midst of that struggle, we Find one who is ever more ready to hear our prayers, including our confessions, than we are to pray them. And in the midst of our confession, he has mercy and grace ready and available for each and every one of us. I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that Jesus walked through temptation so that in his weakness, we might find common ground. So that in his strength, we might have hope. Hope that is abundant today and eternal forever. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God. We thank you for, uh, for, for the way that was made through your son uh, to, to empathize with us. That, that we have uh, a savior, that we have a God who so loves us that, that he would take on our burdens and bear the, the struggle and strife of temptation alongside of us. So we pray, oh God, that that. that this great high priest, this one named Jesus, would, would come into our hearts. Lord, we confess our sin and our brokenness before you. And in it, in our confession, grant us peace. Grant us restoration. 
so that we might be one with you forevermore. Lord, as we continue in worship and we enter into this time of offering, I pray that that you would uh, be present in this space and time by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would bless both the gift and the giver alike, that the gifts would be blessed to, to, to go towards the kingdom-building work of your church, that more and more would be connected to Christ in this community. And Lord, I, I pray a blessing over these givers as well, that, that as they give, Lord, that you would, that, that you would uh, give them joy in generosity they would experience your very presence with them. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.